We're five weeks into a series on politics, the gospel and politics, and uh, halfway through, uh, more than halfway through, and we're basically asking, how does the Christian faith, in particular the Christian story, impact our engagement with politics and power in the world? Um, it is our conviction that in all of life, we are story-formed, shaped by the meta-narrative that we hold dear. And contemporary political ideologies offer uh, a variety of meta-narratives. Each of them have a creation story, an explanation for what's wrong with the world. They usually have a... Um, ultimate sin, a worst sin. Um, they have a savior, uh, a utopian vision. And how do we evaluate these ideologies? How do we evaluate these stories? As Christians, if we are Christian, we should evaluate them against the gospel story. Uh, we must compare these um, ideologies to the meta narrative of scripture. And so that's what we've done. We've spent time with creation, fall, Israel, exile, and now Jesus. Um, but I'd like to take a moment just to sort of tell the story again, just like we do with um, the story of God when we do it in January. What have we learned thus far? And first, in creation, we learned that we were created for politics. Uh, politics isn't inherently bad. It kind of has a bad taste in our mouth. We sort of avoid it. We sort of cringe um, as like a necessary evil. But God commissioned humanity to do a work that would require other people. Uh, he told us that we would need to uh, subdue the earth to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. And all of this is political language. God is picturing a kingship which requires um, cooperation. And he gave that charge not just to Adam, but to Adam, Eve, and all their children, all their seed. To accomplish God's plan, humanity would need to work together. It is not good that man would be alone. And so we're not intended to accomplish things by ourselves. They would need to do politics, uh, setting priorities, uh, making compromise, uh, delegating responsibilities, assigning authority and accountability. This is all political tasks present before the fall, necessary before the fall to be obedient to God. Christianity teaches us that politics existed before sin and will actually exist after sin too. There will be cooperation together uh, post-heaven, uh, post the new heavens and the new earth. Um, but of course, sin did and does make politics a lot harder. Uh, along with everything else, politics is corrupted by sin, and that's the experience that uh, we see most often. It's more frustrating, it's more complex, it's more dangerous. And so in the covenant with Noah, when God restates the cultural mandate to multiply and have dominion, he adds a justice clause in light of sin. Uh, in Genesis 9, 6, it says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And so he still wants Noah and his children and all the people after him to uh, multiply, to flourish, to have dominion, to subdue the earth. But because of sin and the destructiveness of sin, he adds this clause, uh, this responsibility to do justice. 
Uh, Romans 13 refers to this as the power of the sword. Uh, In the rainbow, God has set aside his wrath for the time being. However, to keep the world from devolving into utter chaos, human society has been given the power to punish wrongdoing. Uh, Not all wrongdoing. Noah is not given the authority to punish uh, wrongdoing of thought, but when blood is shed, um, it's the responsibility of humans to uh, bring justice. Um, If you murder someone, the government can and should uh, punish you for murder. Um, There's been a dramatic increase in murders this year in America. I don't know if you've read that and followed it. And so people are wondering, does it have to do with the pandemic and the stress that people are under? But regardless, uh, the Wall Street Journal reports that homicides are up 24% so far this year. And that includes San Francisco. In the city of San Francisco, uh, homicides are up 26% year on year, 2019 to 2020. Uh, Genesis 9 suggests that we should all be concerned about this increase. Uh, We should be grieved by it, and we should feel some sense of responsibility as a people to address an increased murder rate in American cities. Uh, Maggie read a book a few years ago by a reporter from the Los Angeles Times, Jill Leovi. It's called Ghetto Side, and she began a blog in 2006 called The Homicide Report, which which actually still exists and is supported by more than just her. Um, And with the blog, she committed to thoroughly cover every murder in Los Angeles County, uh, which was a tremendous task, uh, more than one, more than a murder a day, essentially. But she was going to cover them. Uh, There were 553 people killed in L.A. County over the past 12 months, and they have a blog post for everyone. And Mrs. Leovi started the blog by herself. And for every murder, she alone did the work. She talked to police officers, she talked to witnesses, to family members about what happened, about the lives, about who was lost. It was a remarkable feat inspired by a commitment to justice, a commitment to, uh, the tagline for the blog is a story for every victim. And rather than letting these murders just disappear into statistics, just shrugging our shoulders at them, she committed to treat all of them as newsworthy. And according to Genesis 9, all murder is newsworthy. Uh, It's not only tragic, it's offensive. The image of God has been snuffed out, and that should uh, cause all of us to stop and... um, take note and to do something, uh, which is why Genesis 9 not only calls us to remember shed blood, but to answer it with justice. After a year of covering murder, she writes Ghetto Side, which sort of tells the big story and then also follows a particular uh, story, um, a murder and then a really devoted LA cop who um, pursues justice in one particular case. But this is how she describes the book. She says, this is a book about a very simple idea. Where the criminal justice system fails to respond vigorously to violent injury and death, homicide becomes endemic. African Americans have suffered from just such a lack of effective criminal justice. And this, more than anything, is the reason for the nation's long-standing plague of black homicides. 
I was listening to Kendrick Lamar this week, uh, and in his song, Triple X, uh, a friend, it sort of tells a story, and a friend calls uh, Lamar devastated, and he tells him through tears, they killed my only son for insufficient funds. Will you pray for me? He's asking for support and help. And Lamar says to him, I can't sugarcoat the answer for you. This is how I feel. If somebody kills my son, that means somebody's getting killed. And it's a really shocking um, reality, but the Bible teaches us that Kendrick Lamar is not wrong for saying this. Uh, There is something deep and right about this requirement for justice. His conviction is understandable. However, in a just society, justice is not only his responsibility, it's everyone's responsibility. He and and his friend should not have to bear that responsibility alone. Uh, This is why we have government to justly and carefully and fairly, soberly execute justice. Um, I had jury duty six months ago. And no one likes jury duty, no one enjoys it, but it really is amazing. Um, Our judicial system spent two whole days picking 12 jurors to decide a very small DUI case, a very tiny thing. They asked hundreds of questions for 16 hours of hundreds of people vetting jurors to guarantee a fair trial. And I remember thinking as I sat there, uh, not allowed to look at your computer, not allowed to do anything, I can't work, and just sitting there thinking how silly we must appear to totalitarian regimes. Like how they must just be like, just decide, like just put a good judge and figure it out. But our country, at least in theory, cares deeply about impartial justice. So much so that we're willing to inconvenience hundreds of people, hundreds of people interrupting their life so that the law is carried out fairly and without prejudice. Uh, you should, if you're summoned, go to jury duty. Do the, do the work. It's a good, good work. But what happens when an entire community is historically and habitually underserved by its government in pursuing justice? They, because they're human, they're going to take matters into their own hands. Uh, Jill Leovi, again, she says that Black America has not benefited from what Max Weber called a state monopoly on violence, the government's exclusive right to exercise legitimate force. A monopoly provides citizens the liberating knowledge that the government will pursue anyone who violates their personal safety. That's the assurance that we should have, that I don't need to take justice in my own own hand because the government will do it fairly. But slavery, Jim Crow, and conditions across much of Black America for generations after worked against the formation of such a monopoly since personal violence inevitably flares where the state's monopoly is absent, this situation results in the deaths of thousands of Americans each year. This is Genesis 9 worked out and fleshed out. We must care deeply as a society about keeping peace and protecting human bodies. It is our God-given mandate. Uh, Murder rates should be important to us. It's not just sad. It's not just tragic. It is our responsibility. 
God will require a reckoning for all shed human blood. Of course, there's more to a flourishing community than a low murder rate. Life is not only meant for surviving, but for thriving. And so in the next stage of the story of God, as God chooses Abraham and his family, as God chooses Israel, he is setting up a model for what thriving looks like. Um, He chose Israel not because of anything special about them, but only because of his grace. However, following grace, it was important that they are not only saved for themselves, um, they are saved so that other nations might find salvation in God through them and their example. That's the purpose of their politics. That's the purpose of the law of Israel, is to be a light among the nations. And how will this happen? Uh, The how is spelled out, at least initially, in the Ten Commandments, uh, which is essentially Israel's founding document. Um, CJ referred to it like Israel's constitution. It's like their Bill of Rights. And so you have in the second table, thou shalt not murder, which guards the right to life. Thou shalt not uh, commit adultery, which is the right to home and family. Uh, Thou shalt not steal, which is a right to property. Thou shalt not bear false witness, which is a right to reputation. Uh, No society on the planet can thrive when these commands are largely left unheeded. Um, You'll find these not just in the Ten Commandments. You'll find them sprinkled throughout human history as the basis for community and law. Uh, These are foundational rights to any just society given not just to citizens of Israel, but notice in Israel, at least, it's also rights given to sojourners, Uh, not just the wealthy, but the poor, widowed, and orphan. In God's world, the marginalized also have a right to life, property, home, and reputation. In fact, later laws go above and beyond to ensure that people on the margins are protected because God shows no partiality. Two interesting things to note about the Ten Commandments. First, unlike the Bill of Rights, which are positive declarations, the Ten Commandments are given in the negative. And so some people don't like the Ten Commandments. They, they kind of cringe with that sort of old King James language of thou shalt not murder. Um, it's too negative. It's too legalistic. They prefer positive uh, commands, um, positive statements of right. And so The question for us is often, like, why do they state these rights negatively? Why not state them positively? Uh, Peter Gentry, uh, an Old Testament scholar, writes, the reason for this is simple. God wants each and every individual person to think first of the inalienable rights of the other person and not first about their own inalienable rights. This explains both the negative formulation and the second person singular, thou. Um, Just as every person is protected by the Ten Commandments, so every person is responsible for the Ten Commandments. Uh, Second thing to note in Exodus 20 is how the more universal human rights of the second table, the last half, thou shalt not murder, steal, commit adultery, and uh, lie, they are grounded first by the religious commandments in the first half. And so as ancient Near Eastern scholars survey uh, other nations, other empires, they regularly find the second table. Like that's not unique. 
Um, but the first table about worshiping one God and only one God, about not building idols, about not taking the Lord's name in vain and keeping the Sabbath, those are very unique, unprecedented in human history. Um, and that's an important uh, religious distinction to Israel and to the people of God. Commandments about God first and then commandments about people. Um, and by this, we know that a just society can only be sustained by a religiously faithful people. Uh, the greatest commandment is what? Love the Lord your God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second greatest is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands hang all the law and the prophets. Uh, there are two tables, two pillars of a just society. Um, again, uh, the vision for Israel and the vision for the church is to be a kingdom of priests, meaning we rule the earth through our priesthood, through rightly relating to God. That is how we will rule. Uh, if you lose the first half of the Ten Commandments, the second half will crumble. Now, how do we know this is true? Um, how do we know that the Ten Commandments lead to a just society in many ways, it's common sense. Um, as we already mentioned, murder cannot be tolerated in a community um, for very long. The community will crumble. Um, theft, broken homes, bearing false witness, fake news, all these things are signs of a culture falling apart. Uh, that's common sense. It's our experience. But biblically, we know the law works because of the rest of the Old Testament. Uh, the it's, there's a negative example in the people of Israel. It's sort of what the rest of the Old Testament is about, the failure of Israel to keep the commandments. They failed to love God alone. They failed to love their neighbor. Uh, the prophets indicted the people for the separation of the rich and poor, which is essentially theft. Um, they, are, they are stealing from the poor, not returning the land to them at the year of Jubilee. Uh, polygamy uh, is not just an expression of lust or like nymphomania or anything like that. In, in reality, it hurts women. Um, it hurts children. Uh, it's oppressive, an oppressive system. And so all of these things uh, reveal that God... Um, uh, that, they, that Israel did not do what God had sent them to do, uh, which was to be a kingdom of priests before the world. And that's why they're disciplined through exile. And so uh, last week, CJ emphasized um, how Israel had a choice uh, when God disciplined them and took them out of the land and sent them to Babylon. Um, they had a choice of what to do, really three choices. Um, they could, in keeping with ancient Near Eastern beliefs assume that Israel's defeat meant that Yahweh was defeated and so become Babylonian and say, man, I guess our God wasn't big enough to protect us and so I need to find a more reliable and trustworthy God. I'm going to build my life without him in Babylon. They could uh, go the fundamentalist route and sort of circle their wagons um, and just wait for God to send them home, kind of like a spoiled child, like just sort of crossing their arms and saying, man, I'm not going to be faithful. I'm not going to do anything until God takes me back to Israel. Uh, we kind of can see that option today some in people who just sort of give up on America and they're just sort of waiting for Jesus to come back again. And there's just a hopelessness there. 
Um, but that's not what Jeremiah told the people of Israel to do. Uh, he told them to work for the flourishing of Babylon, uh, to repent, to believe God, to obey in the midst of a foreign city, to receive his discipline, follow the Ten Commandments, love God, love neighbor, refuse the idols of Babel while still loving Babel, being a light to a chaotic and confused world. And this is very much us. Uh, the New Testament uses this same analogy of exile, of sojourners um, in a foreign land applied to the people of God. Uh, we're waiting for God, but we're called to wait actively, uh, working for the flourishing of the city while testifying to a much better city to come. So we're building houses, uh, building lives, but investing in heaven. We're planting gardens, but bearing the fruit of the gospel. We are marrying and giving in marriage, but we are most mostly being the bride of Christ. And we're called to live in this tension of a people who are both home and not home. Um, this is the call of Christian politics. How do I engage? How do I work for the justice of the city and country and world that I lived in while also holding on to my only hope, which is Jesus Christ and his return in glory? How do I navigate that? And it's so hard. It's so hard to do that. How do I remain in Babylon while not becoming like Babylon? How do I remain in America while not becoming like America? How do I remain in San Francisco while not becoming like San Francisco? Uh, CJ compared this call in his first sermon to walking a tightrope over Niagara Falls. And I just was so thankful for this imagery because um, it just, it resonates with me so much. There's danger on every side. And it requires tremendous focus, balance, cooperation, humility, respect for limits. These and more are all necessary qualities of a person seeking to live in the tension of dual citizenship. It's really overwhelming. Um, in this season, I don't, I don't know about you, um, you know, you have this combination of chaos in the world, but you're stuck at home. The only thing you can do is just read about it. And so I have read way too much politics, like way too much Twitter and news and commentary, like so much. And it's just overwhelming to me. Uh, for this sermon series, I have been reading way too much political theology uh, from different perspectives and then constantly aware, like, man, checking my history wary of cultural blind spots and privilege, but also not wanting to smuggle in unorthodox doctrines. And so it kind of feels harder to me than the Niagara Falls tightrope analogy, because that's just a straight line. Like, it's just, I'm just going to go straight. And it feels like politics is more like an obstacle course. And so... <laughs> Uh, Georgia suggested that I add lasers, and so I added lasers here. This is what it feels like navigating, uh, speaking publicly, um, testifying to the gospel of Jesus Christ in a political sphere. And then, if that weren't enough, add to that 
the challenge of my own sin. So that I'm a tipsy tightrope tightrope walker. Like I, I'm a little I'm a little drunk trying to get across, drunk on my own sin. And it just feels like an impossible task. I've got no chance, and you've got no chance surviving this unscathed. The Old Testament is a testimony to that fact. Uh, the Israelites, uh, before they received the Ten Commandments and afterwards, actually, uh, they said, uh, they told God, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. And they were very sincere. They committed, we will do this. This is good. Um, and yet, within the month, within a month, they were literally melting their jewelry into a cow idol. Like, it's, it's baffling that they would do that after just being rescued not four months earlier. Um, but this is the state of Israel, the chosen people of God. This is the state of you and me, the chosen people of God. Uh, the law sounds great. It is great. The Ten Commandments are truly a masterpiece of political theology. Um, but it doesn't matter if I can't keep them. What are we going to do? Well, enter Jesus. When I read the Gospels, how Jesus navigates the broken world, his good world that we have destroyed, you are amazed at the person of Jesus. Um, he always does the right thing. He always says the best thing. There is never a story in the Gospels where I'm like, man, I, I really think he could have worded it differently or he should have gone this direction. You just are floored how he confronts the people who need confronting with courage, how he holds the people who need holding. No regular human being could write this story. It's utterly amazing. If you t Even if you take the miracles aside, all the supernatural stuff aside, just Jesus's personality engenders faith. Um, I heard David Brooks, who's a New York Times columnist. He grew up in New York City in an in a educated, secular Jewish family. And I heard him uh, last year say in an interview, I can't read the book of Matthew and not believe Jesus is divine. He just was floored at the reality of the Bible and the portrait of Jesus. He's just like, he has to be from God. And it, and it was that reality that has sort of slowly moved him from uh, secular Jewish upbringing to Christian faith. And that's because Jesus is divine. And yet he is also human. Um, I think about CJ's tightrope analogy and even my view with the dragons and lasers and lava, and Jesus just glides right through it. Um, reading Jesus is like watching a world-class dancer just beautifully move his way through space, effortless, graceful, beautiful, relaxed. He does everything right. You watch him dance and you think, this is what bodies are for. This is what words are for. This is what emotions are for. This is what humans are for. This is what we were created to be. Jesus is astonishing. He is the picture of how all of us should live and be. Uh, if you uh, grew up in church in the 90s, uh, you might kind of uh, poke fun a little bit at the WWJD bracelet craze and t-shirts and hats and everything and bumper stickers. But it's a fantastic question. What would Jesus do? What if we asked that question more regularly with humility, integrity, and authenticity, familiar with the scriptures, and just asked ourselves in politics, 
man, what would Jesus do if he were here? What would he say? Because he is here in the body of Christ. Like he is present. And so what is he telling me to do? And in that way, CJ's original analogy works perfect. Uh, The world presents us this elaborate tightrope that's impossible to do with obstacles and difficulties, and they are ready to condemn you if you make one wrong move. But as Christians, our tightrope is simply following Jesus, doing what he does, believing what he says, never taking our eyes off of him, following his lead on the dance floor. Um, If we will walk that tightrope, zeroing in on Jesus, holding fast to him, he will guide us through the stops and turns and dangers of living in our world. Um, I could have gone a million directions this morning when thinking about what Jesus has to do with politics, and I encourage you to, to read the Gospels. Just pick, pick a Gospel, pick the Sermon on the Mount, and just ask yourselves, what does this have to do with politics and governance and my responsibility But I think the first question we have to ask before even doing something like that, the first question we must answer is, will we follow him? Is he the dance partner that we will let guide us and lead us through life? Uh, Next week, we'll look at some later New Testament principles about faith in a faithless world. But for now, all I want to ask you and to ask myself is, Do you trust Jesus? Do you trust Christ? Is he God? Is he Savior? Is he King? If we had to pick one foundational principle for biblical politics, I think it would be that Jesus is the good King. Jesus is the good King. Every political ideology has in mind a perfect king, and they may even have a person that they're really rooting for, that they hope for, but none of them compare to Jesus. He is the good king. He is good and gracious and compassionate, gentle and kind. He is powerful and fierce, just a protector of the weak against enemies. He is rightfully king as eternal son of God and faithful, obedient son, having been obedient to the point of death and now raised to sit at the right hand of the father. He's the king of kings and Lord of lords. He's the way, the truth, and the life, the author and finisher of our faith. So many of us here believe that and confess that to be true. What does it mean when we take all of those convictions and we lay it onto our politics. We lay it on to our decisions about how to move about in the world of American voting, Uh, but not just that, the politics in our workplace, the politics in our neighborhood associations, in our schools. When we work as to the Lord and not as to men, when he is the person we're following, he's my tightrope, he's my dance partner, everything I do is measured against him. Uh, Connected to this uh, very briefly, the text that Brooks read, I think is vital for any Christian theory of politics. Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. 
For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And I think this is one of the most important truths about humanity. Uh, No one can serve two masters. It's an impossible task. You can't do it. No one can serve two masters, but you have to serve one. Uh, You can't sort of stay removed and sort of think, well, I'll be independent and I'll just sort of use allegiances, right? You have to serve one, not two masters, not zero masters, one master. Uh, Political theology, politics, life in general is all about who you choose to serve. Who will you choose to be your master? Who are you going to follow? Uh, You can't be human and serve no one. Uh, individualism is a crock. Um, It's an impossible thing. There's no such thing as a person who can be their own master. Uh, You have to serve somebody or something. That's the creator-creature distinction. That's the difference between God, um, who serves himself, and everything else. Um, Creatures always serve something. Now, I've kind of said that uh, line for years, and I'm kind of proud of it. I think it's pretty great that you... Uh, I thought it was clever whenever I first came up with it. Um, I'm sure somebody else has said it, that you can't serve two masters, but you must serve one. Um, I should trademark it and put it on t-shirts for no one to buy. Um, But what the Holy Spirit struck me with this week was the second part of the verse, what Jesus actually said, not what I said. (laughs) Um, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And what I was struck with was just how much I want to serve two masters. That deep down, my desire is to compromise and serve multiple masters at the same time. I don't want to just settle for one. Um, And that makes sense because holiness is defined in uh, the Bible as wholehearted devotion to God, single-minded devotion to him above everything else. And if that's the case, that means sin is divided devotion. It's not necessarily complete rebellion, but it's sort of venturing away, missing the mark, and including setting someone alongside God and trying to serve more than one. Uh, And Jesus here says, divided devotion is impossible. You just can't do it. Uh, For either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And I think that's true for most of us here, even when it comes to following Jesus and following uh, God. We don't want to be completely independent. Like, we admire Jesus. We love Jesus. He is our Savior. We adore him. Um, we don't want to be without any masters at all. Um, it's just that I, I don't want to pick just one. I'm kind of frustrated that I have to pick just one. Um, I don't want to commit. I want to serve God and money. I want to serve God and comfort. I want to serve, serve God and approval. Uh, in terms of politics, I want to be a Christian while also being respected by my coworkers, neighbors, and friends who are not Christian. Um, I want to be a Christian and also sort of not have to care too much about injustice in the world that makes me feel overwhelmed and small. I want to be able to ignore that. Can't I have all these things? Um, And Jesus says, 
frankly, no. No, you can't. You have to choose. Uh, it reminds me of when Jesus says that it's harder for a rich man to enter God's kingdom than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. It's a famous saying of Jesus. And we hear that, and like Floyd in Dumb and Dumber, we say, so you think there's a chance, there's a little bit of a chance that if I have money, I could get into heaven. I just have to get, I just have to figure it out. That often is my posture to hearing that statement. It's not, well, that I'm not even going to try. Um, it's a, an attempt to balance. I have a deep desire to serve more than one master, but no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. And if you try, one of two things will happen. Either you will, in the case of money, love money and hate God. So that what you really want, what you really love is to make money and spend money and save money and have money like everyone else does. But your Christian convictions and conscience keep you from that. And so you kind of hate him for it. You hate the burden of tithing. You hate the burden of community, which takes away time from your career. Uh, and so you blame God for keeping you from what you really love, which is money. Or maybe in terms of politics, maybe you really love the political energy of the city. Um, it can be exciting and hopeful to think, man, if we just, if we just jump all in, we, will, we can make change. Um, the narrative of being on the right side of history where love wins and freedom reigns and you're frustrated, you love that, you're frustrated with God and his word, which is so clear. Uh, why does being a Christian uh, come with all these draconian views in scripture about sexuality and about freedom and equality and all those things? Um, why does it keep us from joining the party? I wanna figure out a way that I can be faithful to God, but also join the party. And the fact that I can't, it sucks. I hate it. I wish the word of God were different. If, if that is our posture, that we are wishing God's word, God's perfect and good and right word, were different to accommodate our other desires, there is a good chance that I'm serving two masters. And in this arena, I love one and hate the other. That's one application of the text. It's interesting to me, though, how Jesus also presents the opposite scenario. You hate one and love the other, or you're devoted to the one and despise the other. And so for the first time this week, I saw the possibility of not just loving money and hating God, but loving God and hating money, which is still apparently not what Jesus wants. Jesus doesn't want us to love God and hate money. If I'm hating money, that means it's have, it has a hold on me in some way. And so maybe I've matured past loving money and hating God. I, I, I'm no longer caught up in that. I don't love money anymore. I love God. I want to follow him and, and obey him. But if you listen to my words around money, you might say I hate it. Um, where I'm talking about how frustrated I am about money, how I wish that I didn't have to deal with it, that I'm angry at its demands on me. But that means I'm still trying to serve two masters. My hatred for money means that money still has a hold on me. 
And so the question for you in application of this text directly, do you love God but hate money? Do you complain about money? Are you constantly frustrated with its demands on your life? Are you frustrated with the culture's expectations around money? That if you're 36, 37, you should be at this point. You should have this much savings. Like all these sort of narratives that we're told. And we, we know that God isn't telling us those things. But we still feel burdened by them. We still feel frustrated and angry um, that this master is telling me what to do. Can't you just free me to love God? Do you find yourself saying, I wish money wasn't a thing I had to deal with? And I'm right there with you, friends. I feel like that that is my posture. That was what was convicting this week uh, through a number of different circumstances and scenarios where I love God. I hate money. I feel like money is a slave driver in my life. Um, that it's keeping me from living freely. And I realize that that means it still has a hold on me in a way that God does not want it to have a hold on me. He wants me to joyfully follow him alone and let those other things, let those other cares pass away. That's not how I was meant to live, to bow down to someone else beside God. No one can serve two masters. You were built to be singularly devoted to one king and only one king. And yet sin means that we will regularly be deluded to think we can handle more than one. Um, and sometimes we think we have to serve both, um, that I can serve God and money at the same time. I can serve God and success, God and comfort, God and approval. Um, CJ mentioned this temptation last week where we ask, why can't I be the Christian who everyone likes and respects? I want to be the one Christian that is well-liked by everybody. Um, that means I want to serve two masters. And Jesus says compassionately that it's not possible. Uh, regarding politics, you could love politics and hate God, uh, but you could also love God and hate politics. And that's not a good thing either. Uh, where God is your preferred master, and it just sucks that politics has to be a thing in your life. You wish that you could sort of just be you and God and not really have to attend to the outside world and um, be careful about what you say and how to say it and what you do. You resent having to care. You resent having to have an opinion. You want it to go back to the background. Friends, if you hate politics, if politics only brings stress, it might be that it has too much of a hold on you. Uh, that you are serving two masters. Freedom only comes when you serve just one. You can't follow two dance partners at the same time. Uh, it's not possible. Uh, you can't jump from tightrope to tightrope day after day. Uh, you've got to pick one partner, one tightrope, one master, and stick with him. Only then will you be free. There's such freedom in holding fast to Christ. Um, immediately after this passage, uh, where Jesus says, no one can serve two masters, you cannot serve God and money, Jesus says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. That's the reason that he is telling his disciples to pick one master, so that they would be free and not be anxious about their life. Discipline yourself to follow just Jesus and you won't be anxious um, it's certainly helpful to read up on political theology and issues of the day, uh, but only if you're doing it in obedience to Jesus. 
not because you're trying to thread the camel through the needle, not because you're trying to um, to like tolerate or be tolerated by a false master. Uh, you can certainly like deconstruct and decolonize your theology if you feel compelled, but only if it's obedience to Jesus. Uh, don't do it because someone else told you to do it. Don't do it out of a sense of guilt and shame or embarrassment. Um, don't care because you see everyone else caring. Follow Jesus, seek him first and his kingdom, and all these things will be added to you. All those things, God knows you need them, and he will give you what you need. Um, next week, uh, I think uh, we'll be talking about some of the situational details of following Christ, like some principles, um, but that conversation won't do us any good if we're not committed to following Jesus alone first. If we're not going to say, let God be true and every man a liar, that whatever he says, that's true, I'm going to do it. He's good, and so I'm going to follow him. He's my master. He is Lord of lords and King of kings. I serve no one else, only him. Whatever he says to believe and do, I'll believe and do it. And when that happens, every other authority is put in its place um, underneath God. Money, relationships, success, career, approval, politics. I don't love them anymore. Um, and just as important, I don't hate them either. Because I'm not anxious. They have no demand over me. They are all just tools and opportunities in my obedience to Jesus and glorifying him. If you love politics, if you love approval, if you love comfort, if you love money, be wary. But just as much if you hate those things, if you hate stress and obligation, hate money, be wary. You might be giving these things too much authority in your life. There's only room in your heart to serve one master. Who will you serve? Let's pray.